0: going to be preaching from the epistle lesson tonight, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You may recall from a couple of weeks ago when I preached in 1 Peter chapter 1, we talked about uh, the the audience, the recipients of Peter's letter being a beleaguered group of Christians that are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world, primarily in modern-day Turkey, what was Asia Minor. He refers to them as sojourners. They were refugees. They were uh, broken and beleaguered, and they didn't have uh, much. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is telling his hearer, telling his reader, that even though they have lost everything from the world's standard, they have in fact lost nothing that matters. Therefore, stay true to Christ. Stay true to the faith. In chapter 2, Peter is still exhorting uh, his audience to all sorts of um, uh, positive, moral, and ethical Christian behavior, but his argument is just a little bit different. Whereas in chapter 1, he says, even if you've lost everything, you really haven't lost anything because you have an imperishable inheritance in heaven. In chapter 2, he's telling them that not only have they not lost anything, but that they are not what they think they are that there is more to them than is to them. And there is more to you than there is to you. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And as I looked through this passage, one of the words that came out in in my mind uh, was the idea of dignity. That Peter is trying to give his beleaguered people a sense of Christ-given dignity. And from that place... They are being moved and inspired and transformed to actually follow Christ in a holy way. Now, when I think of dignity, I typically think of a woman in nice clothes who stands very upright. That's, that's the usual uh, image that we get of dignity. But in my life, there have been uh, two women that really did not match that description, who I would say were the two most dignified people I have ever known. And their names were Lorreen and Alma. Uh, Alma, uh, when she was in her late 30s, became a widow. Her husband died of a heart attack when he was 42 years old. And she had five children. And this was uh, in the 1950s in a very small town in the mountains of West Virginia. And she didn't have many resources. And so she went to work at the local uh, pharmacy, at the local drugstore where she worked for 40 years raising her children. And they didn't have a lot of money. Everyone in the community kind of knew they were poor. But she had a certain dignity about her, and she would always tell her children, we can't help it if we're poor, but we can help it if we're dirty. Poor may not be a choice, but dirty is a decision. And so you will have baths, and you will go to school. She had a certain sense of dignity that came to her that was outside of her circumstances. The other woman, whose name was Lorene, also a a mother and a wife in the 1950s in rural West Virginia, the wife of a dairy farmer. Lorene's husband, Wallace, right after the attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II, he volunteered to go for, for the military. He signed up in the army. They sent him to to Pearl Harbor to do cleanup now you can imagine after something like Pearl Harbor if you're one of the people in there cleaning up it's it's a rather horrific thing and he came back a very different person he came back uh, an alcoholic and, and a man who had been rather quiet rather reserved and shy became very violent and he was a very cruel and harsh man He he would beat his wife and his children. He had a habit of grabbing his wife with his thumb on the inside of her mouth like a fish hook and grabbing her by the face and pulling her down. Uh, They had eight children together, the oldest of whom uh, took the brunt of the abuse as he got older until there came a point where the four sons all became old enough and big enough that when their dad would come home drunk on a Friday night, they would fight with him in the yard until he passed out. But there was a dignity about Laureen. Now, I'm not, what I'm about to say, I need to be careful, I am not at all implying that a woman going through abuse needs to stay in an abusive situation. I am saying for Lorreen, in her context, in her time, in her place, this was the only option she thought she had she had eight children that needed to be taken care of and so she stayed and she was a christian woman and there were times when the burden would become too much and she would go to a quiet place on the back side of the farm to pray and and to ask god for strength to bear up under the pressure because she didn't think she could make it You see, she had a dignity that even though she was married to the community drunk, even though he treated her as if she were garbage, and he beat her and her children, she had a certain dignity, a certain knowledge, that her circumstances did not dictate who she was. She had an identity and a dignity that spoke against the lie of her circumstances, it happens that Alma and Lorreen are my grandmothers. Uh, they're, both, they're both deceased now. Their husbands are both long deceased. Um, I've seen a lot of things. And the one thing I've seen is that you can decide to allow your circumstances to tell you wh- who you are and what you are. Or you can decide to allow what God says about you to be the final word. And so, Peter is writing to these beleaguered people, and he wants to give them a sense of dignity that inspires them to stay faithful to Christ because of what he has done for them. And first, he gives them the dignity of good desires, the dignity of good desires. You know, we often desire a lot of things, and our desires are very fickle, aren't they? One minute you want Mexican food, the next minute you want pizza, and five minutes later, french fries sound really good. Maybe that's not your problem. Some of you, maybe it's like broccoli. That's never been on my list. But our our desires are fickle. And some of our desires are also dark. And they take us to dark places. But Peter says to his audience in verse 1, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, you see, under pressure, it's easy for us to change our minds about things, it's easy for our desires and our opinions about what God means and wants for us, our desire to follow Him, under pressure it's easily easy to just change our minds and decide that we have a new viewpoint that's five minutes old. And so Peter is telling his congregation, stay true to what you know. If you are going to stay true to Christ as, as a beleaguered people, you have to put away the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the slander. Put away those things that destroy unity. In this passage... The yous in here, you do this, you say this, those are all plural. He's not talking here to individual Christians. He's talking here to the church, to a beleaguered church in a tough place. And he says, if you're going to survive this and stay loyal to your Savior, put away the stuff that destroys unity. I've been in church all my life. I've seen really good churches. I've seen some really bad churches. And the one thing that seems true to me in every bad church I have ever witnessed is that at some point, the people have stopped focusing on Christ, and they've started focusing on their own opinions and desires and preferences. And that leads inevitably to destruction and to the dissolution of a church. And he calls them in verse 2, babes, like newborn babes, newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk. You see, Peter isn't decrying the fact that they have desires. I used this quote last time, so I can't use it again, but C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that, that we, we, we don't desire too much. The fact is, is that we desire too little. Peter is saying to his people, desire more. Like a baby who knows it is hungry, who must have spiritual milk, desire those things that will cause you to grow up in salvation. And what does he mean by spiritual milk? He means the gospel. He means Jesus Christ. He means that if you find yourself in a beleaguered situation where you are tempted to fall away, go back to the foundation. Go back to the beginning. and, and and, And drink and imbibe the pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up into that salvation. And he talks about this, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, if indeed you've tasted. Essentially, Peter is saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, what I'm telling you is going to make perfect sense. But if you have in fact never tasted that the Lord is good, it is pointless for me to even carry on this conversation because you will not understand what I'm saying. And so for the Christian, whenever we are talking about morality and ethics and how we're to live our life, it's all based on the foundational fact of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and everything flows out of that. It isn't about what we are doing on our own. And so what does it mean to taste? What does it mean to taste? Martin Luther says this, but it is said to be tasted when I believe with my heart that Christ has given himself for me and has become my own. And my sin and misery are, here, are his, and his life also is mine. When this reaches my heart, then it tastes, for how can I but receive joy and gladness therefrom? I am heartily glad, as though some good friend should bestow on me a hundred florins. But as to him whose heart it does not reach, he cannot rejoice in this truth. When we have come to a place where we know that we are starving, that's the place where we can actually hear and taste the goodness of God. You see, our desires, our desires often tell us two different lies about ourselves. For those who are pharisaically minded, the lie is that you're okay. You've got it worked out. You've got the, the grade you want, the job you want, the wife or spouse you want, the kids you want most of the time. You've got, you know, you've got what, you've got, you've got what you want. You are fine. And that person who isn't hungry, who doesn't understand that they are, in fact, in great need, will never taste of the goodness of God. But the other lie is just as insidious, and I think it's the one that most of us fall for most often. It's the lie that tells us we are so bad that we can never participate in the goodness of God, because He would turn His back on us. Both of those things are untrue. You are neither so put together that you don't need God, nor are you such a disaster that he doesn't want you. Both of those things are untrue. And so Peter says, desire the pure spiritual milk because you have tasted it, you have known that you were hungry. And that's the place you go back to. That's where you go to Jesus Christ over and over. And so my grandmother, Laureen, when she felt like she was going to buckle under the pressure that she couldn't take it anymore, she went to a quiet place to pray because that was the only thing that was going to get her through. And she told my mother uh, as she was dying of cancer about six years ago that there were many, many times when she almost left in the middle of the night and abandoned them all and that she didn't think she could make it and that she she would cry and she would pray and she'd get through another day. You see, my grandmother understood that she had a dignity that her circumstances uh, could not overcome, that she had a worth in the eyes of God that her circumstances could not overcome, no matter what my grandfather did to her. And so God gives us, through Jesus Christ, the dignity of new desires, desiring things that help us instead of those things that harm us. So not only does he give us the dignity of new desires, but in verse 4, he gives us the, ident- the dignity of a new identity. And there are actually several words in the following verses that he uses to describe us, to describe these beleaguered Christians. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as... As a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to the living stone, Jesus, the living foundation from whom all life flows, as you, plural, all of you, the church, together as individual stones come to Him, you are fitted together into a new thing. Here's the thing you, on one hand, Are just a brick. And what good is a brick by itself? Not much. You can use it as a paperweight. You could throw it at someone. You could throw it through a window. If you're an artist you could probably turn it into something beautiful. I'm not an artist, I don't know. Just don't do one of those things where you just throw bricks around and call it art. Like actually do something with it. See, see that's my uninformed opinion. I probably just insulted someone. Um, but but, but you're, you're just a brick. But it's not important that you are just a brick. Because you are more than you. Because of what Christ wants to do with all of us. And when those bricks come together, those living stones are placed on the living foundation, the living cornerstone of Jesus Christ, Peter says it gets turned into a beautiful temple. Now we can't help but sit in this sanctuary and imagine what a beautiful temple could look like. This is one of the largest sanctuaries, I believe, in western Pennsylvania. It's certainly one of the biggest buildings in Grove City. But if Peter were standing here right now, telling you these things that I'm telling you, he would say to you that this is not the building he's talking about. The building he's talking about is you and me and us together who because we are founded on Jesus Christ, because we go back to the source over and over and over again, passive voice, we are being transformed into a living temple. Something full of beauty and splendor unlike anything the world can actually comprehend. In fact, he says the world doesn't comprehend it because they've rejected the cornerstone and they're going to accuse you falsely also. But he says, you beleaguered Christians have a dignity. Have a dignity that turns the world's words into lies. It overrides what the world says about you. So we are stones being brought together into a beautiful temple to declare the glory of Christ and the gospel of his name. And we have a new identity. We are called twice in this passage. We are called a holy and a royal priesthood. Now there's a lot of discussion I suppose we could have about what role the laity have and what role the clergy have. That's that's not what Peter is interested in here. Because for Peter, a royal priesthood are a people who proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. That we together when we set aside the malice and the slander, and when we focus on Jesus Christ as we're being brought together and built into a beautiful building, we are a priesthood proclaiming the name of Jesus. And so when I look out at you, I do not see bricks. I see a temple. I see a church made up of people who together proclaim Jesus Christ that is who we are we have the dignity of a new identity he also says that as part of our identity that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ spiritual sacrifices of praise and honor and worship and preaching but it's not just that on some level we are the sacrifice that christ wants uh, in return I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your your spiritual worship, Romans 12. Paul speaks similar things in Romans 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are not just beleaguered individuals. We are because of the work of Christ as we come together, are brought together, are built into a spiritual house. We are a sacrifice A gift of Jesus to the Father that is perfectly acceptable because of the work of Christ and so when we talk about ethics when we talk about morality we always go back to the work of Christ the last identifier he uses for us he says that we are now a people he says this in several ways you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're a people now. We're not just individuals suffering through life. We are more than just us. You are more than just you. Your identity is not in your circumstances. You may be perfectly successful at everything you've ever done and that success is not who you are. And you may have been a failure at everything you have ever done and that failure is not who you are. Who you are is a gift of Christ paid for and bought by Him and presented to God as a living sacrifice. That's who you are. And who I am. And so we have the, the dignity of new desires, desires that help us instead of hurt us. We have the dignity of a new identity, that we are more than just us, we are something brilliant and beautiful. And lastly, we have the dignity of an actual purpose. Verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have the dignity of a new purpose. You see, God God doesn't lay down his law as some sort of random act. He doesn't just decide, I'm going to do this and I think they shouldn't do that. He tells us us his moral law so that we will understand who he is and so that when we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, we, we become what we were meant to be. We actually have a purpose to be the image bearer of God. And Christ is shaping us and changing us. And we are becoming fully ourselves as we come together and are formed into a beautiful temple. It is is together that we become who we are and who we are meant to be truly and fully. We are here to declare the gospel of God always to talk about Jesus Christ because that foundation, anchoring ourselves there, that's where we draw our strength from. Now imagine, circling back to the opening exhortation and then I'm done. Imagine if in fact... We put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Imagine that we actually viewed one another not just as individuals, but as a piece of a much larger, much grander puzzle. That if we actually could see ourselves the way the Father sees us, that we are in fact beautiful and glorious creatures because of what Christ has done. And he is always working. C.S. Lewis in... In his book, The Weight of Glory, um, has this great quote. You know, the world, it's hard. Some of you, some of you have made decisions that you regret. Your career hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go. Your relationships have broken up. Some of you have made financial decisions that have haunted you for years. Lewis is going to tell us here in The Weight of Glory that that is not what you are. You're more than that. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if at all only in a nightmare All day long we are in some degree helping each other to helping each other to one or the other of these destinations it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to, mere mortal, to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We are, because of Christ, an everlasting splendor. And your circumstances do not dictate who and what you are. You are, if you're in Christ, you are, (coughs) if you have tasted that he is good, you are what he has said you are which is an immortal splendor that He is building together, all of us, into a beautiful temple for His glory and His honor and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And so you are more than you, and you're probably not what you think you are. You're probably a lot better. Father, we ask that we would embrace this truth, that it would draw us close, and and that you would anchor us in Christ, and that we would go forth in joy to do all those good works you have prepared for us to walk in. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.